When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is a ripeness of time for death regarding others as well as ourselves. When it is reasonable, we should drop off and make room for another growth. When we have lived our generation out, we should not wish to encroach on another. I enjoy good health. I am happy in what is around me. Yet I assure you, I am ripe for leaving all this year, this day, this hour. Perhaps, however, I might accept of time to read Grimm before I go. Fifteen volumes of anecdotes and incidents within the compass of my own time and cognizance, written by a man of genius, of taste, of point, an acquaintance, the measure and traverses of whose mind I knew could not fail to turn the scale in favor of life during their perusal. Thomas Jefferson, 1st of August, 1816. start wondering what prompted Thomas Jefferson's interest in Grimm's fairy tales late in life, dear listener, I should start by clarifying that this was more likely Friedrich Melchior, Baron von Grimm, a German-born French-language essayist to whom Jefferson was referring in this letter to his predecessor and friend John Adams in August 1816. This reference speaks to Jefferson's continued interest in intellectual pursuits rather than folklore in what as he himself admitted in the letter, was the twilight of his life. Though he had hoped his retirement would prove to be a time of tranquility, as we shall soon learn, there were many more struggles ahead for Jefferson in the years after he left Washington, D.C. Before I get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Kenny Ryan from the Abridged Presidential Histories podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. As the name suggests, Kenny and his podcast proceeds through U.S. presidential history a bit faster than I, but in his brevity, he does not shirk a responsibility to quality and provides great insight and perspective for his listeners about the various individuals who have served as president. If you'd like to see what lies ahead for us on our journey, be sure to check out Abridged Presidential Histories once you get done listening to this episode. I'll have a link on the source notes page for this episode, or you can go to aph.buzzsprout.com or search for Abridged Presidential Histories anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Unlike modern-day presidential transitions, Jefferson didn't immediately vacate the president's house upon Madison's inauguration on March 4, 1809. Though he had been working on closing out his private affairs in Washington, and getting his possessions ready to ship back to Monticello, Jefferson still had a few last-minute arrangements to make before he could leave the capital city. In terms of his finances, he had managed to secure loans to settle his current accounts, though, of course, he would still have to figure out how to pay off the $11,000 in debt he had racked up while serving as president. His physical belongings were just as difficult to get in a state of readiness, but with three wagons traveling overland, starting on March 9th, and another shipment of goods going by water. Finally, on March 11th, 
the former president, was ready to bid his friends the Madisons farewell and start on the road home. The trip was not pleasant due to bad roads and a snowstorm, and one of his trunks traveling by water was stolen on the last leg of its journey. Never the matter, though. As of March 15th, Jefferson was finally home to stay. Unlike with his previous retirement from the State Department on New Year's Eve 1793, Jefferson, with this retirement over 15 years later, does genuinely seem to have meant it as his retirement from public office. He had left the federal government in the trusted hands of his protege, and now he could turn his attention to his family, his studies, and his personal business, the latter being arguably the least enjoyable of the three. The peace and tranquility that he imagined his retirement would bring, however, would prove to be elusive. First, as I already mentioned, Jefferson still had a good deal of personal debt to work through, not just the debt that he had incurred while president, but also other debts that dated back even to the pre-revolutionary days. The former chief executive felt confident that he could work through this, though, as he was convinced, quote, that his assets greatly exceeded his liabilities. Even if they did, the problem for Jefferson was that so many of his assets were not in liquid capital. Rather, they were tied up in the properties that he owned, both in terms of land and human beings. Now, with economy and business acumen, other folks might have been able to solve the personal debt issue that Jefferson faced. But Jefferson's time was increasingly spent on dealing with other matters, rather than managing his farm and finances. Jefferson was deluged with correspondence in his retirement, and though he claimed to not be concerned with the state of public affairs, his letters at the time tell another story. With regard to his successor's administration, Jefferson's papers are absent of any opinion on its policies or actions. But President Madison would occasionally write to Jefferson asking for his opinion, mostly, quote, on matters carried over from Jefferson's administration or relating to it. Jefferson had a pledge printed to publicly state that he would not, quote, interfere with his successor or the heads of department in any application for public office. And for the most part, he kept that promise. Exiting from the stage gracefully and remaining out of government business was seen as key to securing his legacy. But Jefferson would find that there were those who were ready to attack that legacy before the dust had settled from the carriage that had carried him out of Washington, D.C. Though Jefferson had gone into retirement, that wouldn't save him from the continued critique of Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. In the first special session held after Madison took office, Randolph would use the opportunity to put forward, quote, a resolution calling for an inquiry into the financial transactions of the government during Jefferson's two terms, as well as, quote, another resolution calling for an inquiry into prosecutions for libel in the federal courts, which related to the Connecticut libel cases discussed in episode 3.32. Meanwhile, a two-volume publication entitled Memoirs of the Honorable Thomas Jefferson attacked Jefferson and his legacy as contributing to a, quote, rise and progress of French influence and French principles in the United States. As always, though, Jefferson's friends and allies came to his defense, despite the fact that he was out of office. Postmaster General Gideon Granger would defend Jefferson in print against Randolph's accusations. And ultimately, his resolutions would come to naught. Meanwhile, the publisher of the National Intelligencer, Samuel Harrison Smith, at the very least printed 
but most likely drafted a series of anonymous articles to refute the points made in memoirs of the Honorable Thomas Jefferson. While watching these attacks lodged against him from afar, Jefferson at least could turn to his family at Monticello for comfort. As discussed in episode 3.285, Jefferson's daughter, Martha Jefferson Randolph, had moved her large family to her father's home in order to serve as the mistress of Monticello, a role that she would occupy for the rest of Jefferson's life. As noted in episode 3.26, Martha's move to Monticello would cause disruptions for the Hemings family, who had been charged with handling what few daily responsibilities there were around the household when it was vacant. They would now not only be expected to serve Martha Randolph and her children, but also visitors to the estate. Gone were the quiet days while Jefferson was away at the president's house. Now, they were all under a microscope. With an abundance of children and grandchildren, both black and white, running about the home and estate, including the newlywed couple Anne Randolph Bankhead and her husband Charles, Jefferson would not experience the loneliness that he sometimes expressed during his tenure in the president's house. This was truly a world that he controlled, unchallenged, and with all of the players in place that made it a comfortable space for him. Moreover, Martha's management of domestic affairs gave her father more time to focus on other matters. This did, at times, turn to the actual management of his plantations. One of the issues that Jefferson faced in the early years of his retirement is that, of the nearly 200 people he enslaved, only around a third of those were available for manual labor. A third of the people he enslaved were aged 10 or younger, while the remainder included the population that had been retired out of service due to either age or incapacity. Indeed, he hired enslaved individuals from other slaveholders at this time to do, quote, construction work on his manufacturing mill, digging his canal, and building roads. Though not doing much in terms of innovation in his agricultural business pursuits at the time, Jefferson was inspired by his son-in-law, former Representative Thomas Mann Randolph, who had developed a new system of furrowing that, during a torrential rainstorm in February 1810, saved his farm from any of the major ramifications faced by neighboring farms. Jefferson, as well as former Senator John Taylor of Caroline, would tout Randolph's work as innovative. Despite such praise, and despite the short-term benefits of Randolph's work, it would not help to improve his son-in-law's increasingly problematic financial state. Jefferson, meanwhile, focused in the first few years of his retirement on experiments in his personal garden, which provided for the family table rather than a profitable crop. And Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone described this period as Jefferson's, quote, golden age as a gardener. For all the money and resources that he put into developing Monticello over the years, though, in order to escape from the hordes of visitors that at times descended on the mountain in order to partake of the hospitality of the former president, before he had left office, Jefferson had started work on a retreat to the southwest. In 1809, Jefferson traveled to his Poplar Forest estate in Bedford County, Virginia, and stayed for the first time in the house that had been constructed per his instructions during the latter days of his presidency. This octagon-shaped mansion would become a part of Jefferson's routine in his retirement, with the former president traveling to this estate on an average of three times a year until he grew to the point where he could not travel easily. This new routine would prove to be a burden, both for the enslaved individuals such as Burwell Colbert, that he forced to accompany him, 
despite the fact that it meant a lengthy separation from his family, as well as his granddaughters who, though they would alternate in providing companionship to him during this journey, seemed to have viewed the trip rather along the lines of teenagers forced to go camping with a parental figure for the weekend. Jefferson, on the other hand, embraced the opportunity to get away, ostensibly under the excuse of checking up on the workings of the plantation there. One does start to understand why eventually he brought such a sizable retinue of familiar folks, though, when you read his letter of February 24, 1811, to his daughter Martha. In the letter, he asserts that, quote, I have wished for Anne, his granddaughter, but once since I came here, and that has been from the moment of my arrival to the present one. The weather has been such that I have seen the face of no human being for days but the servants. I'm like a state prisoner. My keepers set before me at fixed hours something to eat and withdraw. We have had seven snows since I came, making altogether about ten and a half inches. As we've seen so many times during this series, Jefferson did not handle isolation well. Jefferson would be drawn back into the legal realm unexpectedly in mid-May 1810 when he received word that Edward Livingston of New Orleans was filing a suit against Jefferson personally due to Livingston's, quote, eviction from the Bachelor of New Orleans, as ordered by President Jefferson and discussed in episode 3.37. Though ultimately Livingston's goal, quote, was to strengthen his title to this property rather than to collect damages, Jefferson would be forced to retain counsel, and it would ultimately take a year and a half for the case to be dismissed by none other than Chief Justice John Marshall. The former president, however, felt that his personal honor had been questioned in the case, and thus, in March 1812, he drafted an account of his side of the case and his legal arguments to defend his actions as president and had it published. Though he admitted, quote, that this dry legal argument was not at all suited to popular reading, Jefferson felt the need to enter back into the public debate in order to defend himself and his legacy. Livingston did respond to Jefferson's arguments in 1814, but we need not concern ourselves much with that. The important point to note of this time in Jefferson's post-presidency was that, even well into his successor's second term, Jefferson continued to be a topic of discussion and a point of attack in the public sphere. As much as he tried to leave that public space throughout his retirement, Jefferson would continue to find himself in it, though never to the great extent that he had occupied it previously. The former president turned occasionally to the one son-in-law of his still in the federal government as of his retirement when he felt the need to get his ideas into the halls of power, but their relationship was at times a strained one. Representative John Wales Epps, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, had remained close to his father-in-law even after the death of Jefferson's daughter and Epps's wife, Maria, in 1804. In April 1809, Epps was wed once more to Martha Burke Jones, the daughter of prominent North Carolina politician Wiley Jones. It wasn't so much his new bride that caused disagreements between the two, but rather Epps's son with Maria, Francis Epps. As with his other male grandchildren, Jefferson had plans for the boy's education and future and strove to remain close with him, with Francis joining his extended family at Monticello for two successive winters in 1809 and 1810. However, Francis's father threatened the close relationship between the young man and his grandfather a couple of years later when he considered selling the estate of Pantops 
which was near Monticello. Jefferson had donated the property to John Wales and Martha Epps, hoping that they would settle there, then pass it on to Francis. While the former never happened, Jefferson still had hopes of his grandson moving to be close to him someday. Jefferson was resentful over both the shattering of his dream to have Francis live nearby, as well as Epps' intention to sell land that had been gifted to him with the intention of his passing it along to his son, and this led to a cooling of relations between the former president and the representative. In order to retain Pantops in the family, Jefferson proposed to Epps a land swap. The tract at Pantops, in exchange for a comparable one at Poplar Forest. Unfortunately, nothing would come of this idea for years, but it did at least clear the air between the two. Though Epps avoided Monticello for the majority of the 18-teens for fear of an adverse interaction with Thomas Mann Randolph due to their previous animosity, as discussed in past episodes of the podcast, Jefferson would go to visit Epps at his home at Millbrook. In the midst of the War of 1812, the former president used Epps as his go-between to share his ideas on the nation's finances with those in Washington, D.C. Jefferson got rather obsessed when the U.S. declared war in Great Britain in 1812 about how the nation would pay for the conflict. As always, at least in public matters, if not in his private finances, he felt that the nation should avoid going into unmanageable debts. In his first letter to Epps on the matter on June 24, 1813, he noted that, quote, Our government has not, as yet, begun to act on the rule of loans and taxation going hand in hand. Basically, Jefferson felt that the government should have a plan for increasing revenues to pay off its debt before actually entering into the debt. Even though he was gravely concerned about the high rates of interest being charged on new federal debt, he did not feel that the nation should create a new Bank of the United States, such as the First Bank, whose charter Congress had allowed to expire in 1811. As Jefferson said to Epps, quote, No one has a right to the trade of a moneylender, but he who has the money to lend. Let those then among us who have a moneyed capital and who prefer employing it in loans rather than otherwise set up banks and give cash or national bills for the notes they discount. In his second letter of September 11, 1813, Jefferson again turned to the points from the first letter and also provided a formula that the House Ways and Means Committee, which Epps chaired, could use in determining the level of taxation that would be necessary to pay off the federal loans. As Dumas Malone stated in the final volume of his biography of Jefferson, though, quote, government officials were faced with immediate problems, not susceptible of theoretical solution. As Epps had observed, it was difficult at this stage to devise taxes that were both equitable and adequate. As with many of Jefferson's grand schemes, especially now that he was out of official power, this fiscal plan would come to naught. By this point, however, he had become a willing participant in a scheme devised by fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dr. Benjamin Rush had maintained a correspondence with both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson in their period of estrangement, though 
To be fair, his correspondence with the former president was much more frequent than with his successor during Jefferson's presidency. From his home in Philadelphia, Rush started working in October 1809 to bridge the gap between Quincy, Massachusetts and Charlottesville, Virginia. Finally, on January 1, 1812, Rush's prodding paid off and John Adams took up his pen to write to Thomas Jefferson. It was a short note, but simultaneously, Adams sent a gift. A copy of his son, John Quincy Adams, printed Lectures on Rhetoric and Oratory. Thus would reignite a lively correspondence which would continue on for the remainder of both men's lives. Though this epistolary collection is mined even by students of history of the present day, 2021 at the time of this recording, more importantly, this allowed both men a sense of peace of mind in terms of the damage that their political ambitions and differences had done to their friendship. Part of why I believe this correspondence still draws the attention of folks in the present day is the hope that, though bridges may be burned, With the rhetoric and passions of the moment, they may be rebuilt at some future date. No matter what time we're in, reconciliation and reunion are experiences we desire with those for whom we long. It's only human to hope for that day. When not thinking of fiscal plans for the nation or writing letters to John Adams, Jefferson's mind was increasingly turning towards educational matters. Before I get into the first phase of Jefferson's involvement in establishing a new higher educational institution in central Virginia, let's discuss the War of 1812 for a moment. As you can imagine, we'll discuss it in much more detail in the Madison series, but we do have to briefly touch on the burning of Washington, D.C. in August 1814, and, in particular, the burning of the approximately 3,000 books that constituted the Library of Congress at that point. Jefferson had already had in mind to offer his collection either to Congress or to a new university in Virginia should it be established in the event of his death. But upon hearing of the decimation of the national capital, the former president wrote to his friend Samuel Harrison Smith, who at this point was Commissioner of Revenue, to offer up his library, which contained over twice the number of volumes that were lost to Congress, as a replacement. Now, this wasn't a completely altruistic move. At this point, Jefferson, like many others in the nation, was struggling financially. As someone who earned his living primarily from agriculture, on top of the disruptions to the trade markets brought about by the war, the weather had not brought good conditions for his crops. As noted by Malone, in the summer of 1813, quote, there had been only one rain to wet the ground since April, and he, Jefferson, expected to carry to his barn that year not more than a third of a normal crop. Jefferson had been able to take advantage of the fact that he was managing funds for his friends Philip Mazai and Tadus Kosciuszko while both men were in Europe and gave himself loans on their behalf, which, naturally, he intended to repay to both men respectively, but which saw him through immediate shortfalls in the early years of his post-presidency. As Malone notes, however, quote, In an abnormal time, Jefferson eased his immediate difficulties by incurring another debt on the assumption that things would surely get better. They did not get better. Thus, in the fall of 1814, in order to meet the necessity of Congress for a library for reference as they crafted the laws of the nation in the remote wilderness that was Washington, D.C., Jefferson saw the transaction of Congress purchasing his library as a win-win for everyone. There was one sticking point in the proposal before Congress could agree, though. Most of Congress 
had no clue what books Jefferson actually had in his collection. I mean, it could be the 19th century equivalent of Harlequin romances for all they knew, though that might just be a selling point to seal the deal. To this, Jefferson responded that, quote, The collection, while it includes what is chiefly valuable in science and literature generally, extends more particularly to whatever belongs to the American statesman. In the diplomatic and parliamentary branches, it is particularly full. Naturally, though, the former president would have a full inventory done if Congress was interested in the deal. At first, it looked like there was some reluctance, primarily relating to factional animosity. Federalists in particular were reluctant to agree to such a deal with the dreaded Jefferson. But, as he had experienced in his presidency, there were even some Democratic Republicans that disapproved. Finally, though, Congress agreed to proceed, and the man engaged to do the inventory and provide an estimated value reported that there were 6,487 volumes in the collection and put the value of it at $23,950. On December 3, 1814, the Senate agreed to the bill authorizing the purchase, and on January 30, 1815, the House approved the purchase despite the effort of Representative Joseph Lewis Federalist from Virginia, to, quote, indefinitely postpone consideration of the authorizing bill, an effort which narrowly failed by just four votes. With the deal done, all that remained was for Jefferson to get the books back that he had loaned out to friends, make arrangements for their transport, and send word when they were ready for pickup. Once he sent word that the books were ready, Jefferson sent instructions to Congress on where to send some of the payment in order to pay off certain debts of his including that ode to Tadeusz Kosciuszko. As someone who has been collecting books since he was, as we say in the South, knee-high to a June bug, the thought of seeing all of my books gone is chilling. Don't worry, though. Even though he was still not financially secure, Jefferson began acquiring new books immediately after selling his library at Monticello, and in those days, there was no $1 bin for used books. There were no cheap books especially the ones that Jefferson was interested in, particularly as they had to be shipped from great distances, whether within the U.S. or from Europe. In the last decade of his life, though, the former president would not just be concerned about furthering his own education, but would increasingly turn his time and attention to the education of future generations of Virginians. What remained of the Board of Trustees of Albemarle Academy met in a tavern in Charlottesville in the spring of 1814 and nominated Jefferson as a trustee of the institution that, as described by Dumas Malone, quote, although it had been chartered a decade earlier, existed only on paper. As Jefferson did with projects like this that caught his fancy, he threw himself into the work and went above and beyond the expectations of his fellow trustees. Rather than just developing a plan for a new academy or college, Jefferson that fall drafted a comprehensive general plan for public education across Virginia. He broke down the educational system to be, quote, first or elementary grade at the ward schools, the, quote, second or general grade, and the, quote, third or professional grades, and defined what subjects would be studied at each level of a young Virginian's educational journey. Rather than the grades as we think of them in the 21st century, Jefferson's grades were along the lines of what we think of as primary, secondary, and tertiary education. Notably, Jefferson even included in his plan, quote, a provision for a technical school, 
offering free nightly lectures for the benefit of craftsmen of almost every sort. He hoped that Albemarle County could serve as a pilot for the system and sent a plan to the Virginia State Legislature for Albemarle Academy to be transformed into Central College and for this new institution to be authorized to create elementary schools in the region. However, as with so many of Jefferson's plans, this innovative scheme found opposition from folks who considered it too far-reaching or others who entertained notions of a new college being started in their part of Virginia or by those who just didn't like Jefferson. Finally, though, Central College was authorized, and a six-member Board of Visitors was appointed, which included, in addition to the former president, supporters of Jefferson, including his outgoing successor, Madison, and his incoming successor, Monroe. This new board met in Charlottesville on May 5, 1817, and it was clear from the beginning that Jefferson was in the driver's seat. The board authorized the purchase of 200 acres of land on the outskirts of Charlottesville, and Jefferson presented his rough sketches of what he would dub the quote-unquote academical village. Jefferson envisioned much more for this new institution than just a small college, though. He wanted to make it into a world-class university. For that, they would need money. So the board also started a fundraising drive, with Jefferson kicking it off by donating $1,000. As can be imagined, Jefferson's interests were less on fundraising and more on the architecture of the university. For those who have visited the oldest part of the University of Virginia campus, you've seen the heart of Jefferson's academical village, now known as the Range, which surrounds the lawn in two wings. His idea was to create spaces where the university's professors would be in close proximity to the students, and the learning and domestic spaces flowed together rather than being separated. As described by Alan Pell Crawford in his book on Jefferson's later years, quote, Jefferson's design integrated classrooms and living spaces in a harmonious pattern. It shunned the large, grand, and costly buildings preferred by older European institutions in favor of parallel pavilions, apartments, and one-story dormitory rooms connected by a covered walkway. It was, in essence, Jefferson's ideal state with learning at the core of living. As the member of the Board of Visitors closest to the university site, Jefferson took on the bulk of the administrative responsibilities for the institution at this early stage and would travel back and forth to the site on a regular basis. Slowly but surely, with the cornerstone being laid by President Monroe in October 1817, the new institution was coming along. But there was still much more work to be done to improve education in Virginia, as well the man from Monticello knew. With the initial fundraising efforts going well, the board in the summer of 1817 could turn its attention to the question of professors for the new institution. Naturally, Jefferson had his opinions and was heavily involved in the process of determining candidates to approach. The former president's mind was not solely on the college in Charlottesville, however. In September 1817, he had sent his proxy in the Virginia State Legislature, State Senator Joseph C. Cabell, quote, the draft of a bill for the establishment of elementary schools throughout Virginia. The month after, as requested by Cabell, Jefferson sent a more, quote, comprehensive bill for a state system of elementary, intermediate, and higher education. This scheme, however, would prove to be too much for certain key leaders in the state. Essays began appearing in the Richmond Enquirer at the beginning of 1818, written by former U.S. Senator William Branch Childs, that were, as described by Dumas Malone, quote, demagogic, and anti-intellectual. 
Though the larger bill failed, a bill to establish a state university with, quote, an annual appropriation of $15,000 to it after its site had been determined by law was passed. The site of this university would be decided by a commission of 24 Virginians, and to no one's surprise, Jefferson was chosen for this commission. Though Jefferson had already decided in his mind that Central College needed to be transformed into a larger university, this was the final step needed to make that dream a reality and to ensure that his academical village would be the setting of the world-class institution that Jefferson truly wanted to establish. Before that could happen, though, Jefferson and Madison, who was also appointed to the commission, would have to convince the other 22 commissioners at the meeting called at Rockfish Gap in the Blue Ridge Mountains, starting on August 1st. As noted by Malone, the setting of this meeting was significant as, quote, sectionalism was such an important ingredient of politics in Virginia at the time, and this lovely range of mountains was generally regarded as the dividing line between the eastern and western sections of the state. Central College in Charlottesville was not the only possible institution vying for the honor of being transformed into the state university. Also in contention was Washington College in Lexington, Virginia, an institution that, at the beginning of 2022 at least, is known as Washington and Lee University. Washington College at that point had more buildings already constructed than Central College, and certainly more than the other contender for the site, Staunton, Virginia, which as far as I've been able to find, would be starting from square one. Ultimately, the two former presidents won out, and by a vote of 16 to 5, Charlottesville was selected as the site for the new state university. Unfortunately, after the meeting, Jefferson went to the Warm Springs Valley for a respite, but ended up suffering from boils on his posterior, which he blamed on the hot springs that he visited while there. As one can imagine, it made for an unpleasant journey home, and his continued ill health afterwards led to rumors that he was near death. Though Jefferson would recover, his plans for the state university at one point in the next legislative session looked to be in dire straits, but Senator Cabell worked the bill through, and finally, in the early part of 1819, the University of Virginia was chartered out of what had been Central College. Just as Jefferson's mind was focused on creating an educational institution to train future generations in general, so too was his mind turning to the younger generations of his own family. Jefferson's increasing involvement in matters beyond his estates necessitated him turning to his oldest grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, known to the family as Jeff, to take over the day-to-day management of his estates in Albemarle County in the spring of 1815. The former president continued to involve himself in the education of his other grandson, Francis Epps, and in addition to paying for his schooling, took an active role in his education in the summer of 1815, as well as the subsequent winter, which Jefferson insisted Francis spend at Monticello. Again from Malone, quote, If Francis was not a permanent member of the circle at Monticello, he was entirely at home there. And at the family outpost at Poplar Forest, he was welcomed as heir apparent. Despite his largesse in being a doting grandfather, as well as a benefactor of the educational institution he was planning in Charlottesville, Jefferson's farms continued to suffer due to factors out of his control, particularly in 1816 in what would come to be known as the year without a summer. While Virginia fared better than places further north, the crops that year were still less abundant than average. Not only did this directly impact his profit margin, but Jefferson had, quote, 
to purchase corn at an excessive price to feed his slaves. Though the sale of his library to Congress had reduced his debt in half, there was still the other half to pay off, and the poor economic climate, as well as other business setbacks, meant that Jefferson incurred new debts in order to make ends meet. Jefferson continued his dance between creditors, borrowing from one and asking for longer to pay off another in order to meet the more urgent needs of a third. As described by Malone, quote, driven by necessity, he, Jefferson, continued the costly policy of paying one debt by incurring a greater. In 1817, however, he made probably his most detrimental financial mistake, for it was in that year that the former president approached Wilson Carey Nicholas about a new loan. Nicholas, who also resided in Albemarle County and was the father-in-law of the former president's grandson, Jeff, had been a member of the Virginia House of Delegates before serving in both the U.S. Senate and House, then returned to Virginia to serve two terms as governor. By this point, though, Nicholas was serving as the president of the Richmond branch of the newly reconstituted Second Bank of the United States. Nicholas, as so many had over the years, agreed to secure a loan for Jefferson. The first was for $3,000, and Nicholas assured the former president that he had no worries about the loan not being renewed. The following spring, Nicholas personally guaranteed another loan of $3,000 for Jefferson. With each loan, Jefferson became further indebted personally to Nicholas, who was using and abusing his official position for Jefferson's benefit. Nicholas did not wait long before asking Jefferson for a favor of his own. Nicholas had two personal banknotes for $10,000 each that he asked Jefferson to endorse. Again, from Malone, quote, he, Jefferson, was told that his endorsement would be needed for a year at the longest and that Nicholas's estate was worth at least $350,000. Jefferson was reluctant to endorse these notes and, indeed, had made it a point in the past not to do so as he had seen so many, including his son-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph, suffer financially from endorsing notes for friends that then left the endorser to pay off the debt. But surely he could trust this venerated Virginian gentleman, right? Right? Jefferson did endorse Nicholas's notes, and as you can imagine, dear listener, this did not turn out well. 1819, in addition to bringing the charter for the new University of Virginia, also brought financial distress to the nation. While it's beyond our scope to discuss in detail the Panic of 1819, as we will discuss it in further detail when we get to the Monroe presidency, suffice it to say that this was the largest financial downturn that the still young United States had faced to that point. For Jefferson, who had been relying so heavily on debt to make ends meet, this was already devastating enough between the drop in the price of goods produced by his farms and the drying up of lines of credit available to him. But what would drive him over the financial precipice were those notes that he had endorsed for Wilson Carey Nicholas. On August 5th, 1819, Nicholas wrote to Jefferson, quote, with the greatest pain and mortification to inform him that he had been forced to, quote, convey my property to trustees to secure the payment of my debts, and particularly my endorsers. Basically, all of his assets were being seized in order to settle his debts. Nicholas's total debts were found to be over $200,000 in 1819 dollars, which, according to our friends at the Historical Currency Converter, was the equivalent of just under $7 million 
in 2015 U.S. dollars. Jefferson didn't understand what this meant for him personally at first, especially since Nicholas assured him that he would see to it that Jefferson was not impacted. However, as creditors started to contact others that had endorsed notes for Nicholas, they finally got around to Jefferson and, quote, informed him that he would have to provide more security to ensure the repayment of Nicholas's debt. Despite his own financial distress, Jefferson felt himself more than capable of recommending a course of action to the Virginia State Legislature to stabilize the state's economy, and on November 28th wrote to Virginia State Delegate William Cabell Reeves of a plan to reduce the amount of bank paper in circulation while also providing relief for debtors, which Jefferson believed would alleviate the economic woes of the state. Reeves was instructed not to share that the plan came from Jefferson, though one has to wonder if that would have improved its chances. In any case, the Virginia House of Delegates did not act on this proposal. Meanwhile, the former president continued to juggle his own personal debt with another nail in the coffin of his fiscal security coming on October 10, 1820. On that date, Wilson Carey Nicholas died at his home, Tufton, and Jefferson was left completely saddled with the $20,000 debt. Despite his personal woes, former president continued being heavily involved with planning for the new University of Virginia. At the first meeting of the new Board of Visitors on March 29, 1819, Jefferson was chosen as the first rector for the new institution. The first professor chosen for the university, Thomas Cooper, who had also been invited to a professorship at the previous Central College, would turn out to be a controversial choice. Cooper was known to be, quote, a radical in politics and could be too hasty in his opinions for his own good, even as his friends admitted. Still, he was Jefferson's first choice. And when the first attacks on his appointment came, when news of it was made public, with the publication of the rector's first annual report to the Virginia General Assembly at the end of the year, Jefferson would come to Cooper's defense. By March 1820, however, even James Madison's support was wavering. And as Cooper had accepted an appointment to South Carolina College, as it was clear it would still be some time before the University of Virginia would open, Cooper offered his resignation. By May, Jefferson wrote Cooper that it would be best for both parties to walk away from the appointment. This left the new unfinished university back where it had begun in terms of a faculty, and with the increased criticism of the institution from within and outside the halls of power, some began to wonder if the University of Virginia would ever open its doors. Jefferson's work on education folded into his family affairs in 1819 when he found it, quote, a classical grammar school in Charlottesville with a faculty of one. Jefferson arranged for his grandson, Francis Epps, to attend the school, and John Wales Epps, now a U.S. senator, used the opportunity of bringing Francis to school to visit Monticello once more. Unfortunately, the faculty member hired for the school could not maintain order and discipline amongst the students, and by the next summer, the school was closed for good, with Francis then being sent to South Carolina College, where Thomas Cooper was teaching. This, however, paled in comparison to another controversy that the younger generations of Jefferson's family were involved in around this time. The marriage of Jefferson's granddaughter Anne to Charles Bankhead, which had come at the end of his presidency, was not a happy union, and as the 18-teens went on, Charles became an increasingly heavy drinker, increasingly in debt, and increasingly abusive to Anne. With the laws of the time granting, quote, unfettered authority to a husband over his wife and children, There was little that anyone could do in the situation, though the terrible state that Anne and her children were in 
was known to the other members of the family. On February 1st, 1819, however, the private family matter exploded on the streets of Charlottesville when Charles Bankhead ended up in a confrontation with his brother-in-law, Jeff Randolph, and Bankhead stabbed Randolph, quote, in the lower back and left arm. Jefferson was called to the scene, and he arrived to find his beloved grandson, quote, still feverish and fighting for life in the back room of a store. According to an account from the time, the former president, quote, dropped his knees and began to sob. Recognizing his grandfather, Randolph wept as well. Ultimately, in order to avoid further scandal, Bankhead ended up, as described by historian Cynthia Kerner, being, quote, released from the sheriff's custody on bail and inexplicably never stood trial. Though Jeff Randolph did recover from the attack after a few weeks, quote, he was to bear the scars from this encounter to the end of his life. As discussed in episode 3.285, the special episode on Martha Jefferson Randolph, Jeff's father, Thomas Mann Randolph, would see a return to political prominence at the end of 1819 as he was elected as governor of Virginia, a post to which he would twice be re-elected. Unfortunately, as with many politicians of the time, this period of public service would only further the Randolph state of financial distress, and there was little that Jefferson could do to assist, given his own shaky finances. This strain would cause a rift between father and son as Jeff Randolph stepped in and assumed control of his father's finances in the spring of 1824. The Randolphs were not the only branch of the family experiencing financial woes, though. John Wales Epps, following his brief tenure in the U.S. Senate, had assumed responsibility for his son Francis's education at South Carolina College, given Jefferson's financial crunch. But Epps, too, began to suffer setbacks in both his health and his business fortunes, and Francis was ultimately forced to abandon his formal education. Jefferson wrote to his grandson advising him to start reading to practice law and asserted in the spring of 1822, quote, that two years' study would provide him with a superficial knowledge of the law, but that three would be required for profundity. Rather than taking that course, Francis instead got engaged to Mary Elizabeth Cleland Randolph, and the two were wed on November 28th. With their wedding, Jefferson relinquished control of Poplar Forest to Francis, who can now establish it as his homestead and take over planning operations at the estate. Following the young Epps taking control of it, Jefferson would only visit Poplar Forest once more in May 1823. As his family continued their struggles, the former president continued with his work to make the University of Virginia a reality. Since Thomas Jefferson had initially marked off a spot for, quote, some principal building, and Benjamin Latrobe had initially suggested a, quote-unquote, center building at the north end of the lawn in 1817, the building that would ultimately come to be known as the Rotunda had been a source of contention in the university construction project. As noted by Malone, by the early 1820s, quote, the rotunda had become a symbol of extravagance. Jefferson, however, would not yield in this battle. Both from an architectural and an educational standpoint, he felt that the rotunda building was essential in taking the institution to the heights of academia in which he wanted it to grow. Though he would defer year after year to prioritizing other buildings in the construction project, Jefferson's mind was focused as he saw the rotunda as the architectural keystone of the University of Virginia. Finally, in March 1823, he authorized work to begin on the rotunda. Again from Malone, quote, He, i.e. Jefferson, could now count on the ultimate completion of his academical village according to plan. 
For all of the beauty and craftsmanship that went into the buildings, though, the institution also required people, starting with professors. For this, too, Jefferson had a plan for which to provide. In the latter part of 1823, former president wrote to his immediate successor, Madison, to confirm that there was a consensus among the Board of Visitors that an agent should be sent to Great Britain in order to identify folks that could be recruited to serve as professors at the University of Virginia. While Jefferson's erstwhile proxy in the Virginia State Legislature, Senator Joseph C. Cabell, had initially expressed an interest in the mission, he ultimately decided that he was not capable of taking up the task. And thus, Jefferson turned his attention to the younger Francis Walker Gilmer, a 33-year-old promising Virginia lawyer. Without consulting anyone but Madison, Jefferson tentatively offered Gilmer the mission, as well as the position of professor of law at the university, both pending the full board's approval. Gilmer agreed to travel to Britain, but asked for time to consider the professorship. In the spring of 1824, the Board of Visitors met once more to consider the faculty situation. Initially, the plan had been to provide for 10 faculty members. But in order to allow more financial resources to be available to get the university going on a good footing, the board opted to reduce the initial number of professorships to eight and for Gilmer to travel to Europe for the purpose of recruitment with the goal being to open the university's doors on February 1, 1825. Gilmer set sail on May 8, 1824 from New York to begin his task. And while he was abroad, Jefferson set himself to work building yet another library. This one, however, would not be for himself, but rather for the institution that he was bringing into existence. In preparation for the autumn meeting of the Board of Visitors, Jefferson worked diligently through the summer to draw up a catalog of books which should be purchased for the university. And that fall, he was able to report out a list of 6,860 books at an estimated cost of over $24,000. Now, the university didn't have the funds to purchase this vast collection just yet, and indeed, there was as yet nowhere to put the books should they arrive. But this did not stop Jefferson from reaching out to a bookselling firm in Boston. Jefferson's work on the university's behalf in the latter half of 1824, however, would not just be with crafting lists of books. Earlier in the year, he had learned of the impending visit of that great Revolutionary War hero, the Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette, at this point, had achieved a level of reverence in the American psyche, second only to George Washington, as he had not been tainted by the party politics of the last few decades, as so many other revolutionary heroes had been. And with his visit, Jefferson saw an opportunity for the University of Virginia. Beyond just giving him a chance to visit with an old friend, Jefferson planned for Lafayette to see the progress of the University of Virginia with a dinner that would be hosted, quote, on the topmost floor of the unfinished rotunda beneath the dome during his visit to Charlottesville in November of that year. As is done with celebrities in modern times, Jefferson would use Lafayette's reputation to give his own project legitimacy, and it seems that his French ami did allow himself to be so used for the cause. Shortly after Lafayette's departure, Jefferson learned of the success of Gilmer's mission to Europe. Though none had traveled back with Gilmer to the U.S., he had successfully recruited five men, and after they made their arrangements on the other side of the Atlantic, they would proceed to Virginia. This news, however, stirred up a new hornet's nest when newspapers start to comment, quote, on the importation of professors. Plus ça change, mes amis. 
Of the remaining three professorships, Gilmore had yet to make up his mind on whether to accept the post of Professor of Law, and the other two folks who were chosen, though Americans, had been initially born abroad. Gilmore, should he accept, was the only native Virginian of the eight. Meanwhile, developments at another institution of higher education in Virginia threatened the future of the University of Virginia before the first classes were even held. The College of William and Mary had been established in Williamsburg closer to the coast when Williamsburg was still the capital of the then colony. After the capital moved to Richmond, the college back in Williamsburg languished. In 1824, a plan was put forward to move William and Mary to Richmond and establish a medical school there. While this would potentially help William and Mary, it would pose a direct threat to the University of Virginia as only 70 or so miles would separate the two institutions. Some folks might decide to go to the more established institution of William and Mary rather than trying their luck at the experiment in Charlottesville. Though Jefferson made no public comment on the matter, he did correspond back and forth with State Senator Cabell about the matter. Jefferson proposed that William & Mary should be joined with the University of Virginia, thus giving the new university access to William & Mary's sizable endowment of $100,000. Cabell, however, did not think this feasible in the political climate of the time. Jefferson then proposed a plan B. Maybe William & Mary's endowment could be redirected, quote, to establish a system of intermediate institutions starting with one in Richmond and one in Williamsburg. Though Senator Cabell had his doubts as to whether this would be any more palpable to the politicians in Richmond, he did ask Jefferson to draft a bill to that purpose, and Cabell showed Jefferson's letter with the initial proposal to a few of his colleagues. Before long, the rumors started spreading that Jefferson, quote, had ordered the plundering of the College of William and Mary and the bribery of various parts of the state. Ultimately, the bill to move William and Mary to Richmond died in the state legislature, and it looked like the road was clear once more for the University of Virginia to have a fair chance with its start. That is, of course, if they could finally get the professors to Charlottesville. Though three of the professors had set out from London in October 1824, they had been delayed by weather in the English Channel, and thus, on December 5th, they were still in Plymouth. Finally, on February 10th, 1825, One of the professors sent word to Jefferson that they had arrived at Norfolk, and thus Jefferson was able to send out an announcement that the new university would open its doors on March 7th. As described by Malone, quote, the opening of the university on March 7th, 1825, appears to have been entirely unceremonious and could not have been impressive. About 30 students were on hand. The visitors had relaxed the regulations for the present year so as to permit enrollment at any time. Students continued to drop in by twos and threes, despite a long spell of rainy weather during which the Richmond and Fredericksburg stages stopped running. Indeed, the Board of Visitors was so desperate for students in this first term that they, quote, relaxed for the first year the admission requirements Jefferson had specified for the several schools, as the students were found to be, quote, so defectively prepared to meet those requirements. Still, by the end of March, there were around 50 to 60 students, and After years of effort, Jefferson's educational experiment had begun. Despite the success, Jefferson would be troubled by his family's personal and financial struggles. As the Randolphs' travails and tribulations were discussed in episode 3.285, we won't repeat those here, but the stress about his family and the university could not have helped his health. Indeed, in May 1825, 
Jefferson summoned Dr. Robley Dunglison, one of the new professors at UVA, to Monticello to treat his ill health. For six weeks, Dr. Dunglison made the journey back and forth to check on his patient. For most of the summer, Jefferson remained at Monticello, too unwell to venture far beyond his home. As the time neared for the fall meeting of the Board of Visitors, Jefferson wrote to the group asking for them to come to Monticello for their meeting rather than gather at the university. Though they did have to meet informal session on the university grounds as was legally required, they would otherwise meet with the university's rector at Monticello for five days. Still suffering from ill health, Jefferson did agree in early October to a request from a sculptor, John H.I. Brower, to make a life mask of the former president, which meant that plaster would be applied to Jefferson's head and neck. Brower, however, left the plaster in place too long. Rather than the standard 20 minutes, he left it on Jefferson for an hour, and it, quote, became so hard that a chisel and mallet were required for its removal. His family was frightened during the experience that their elderly patriarch would suffocate before the plaster could be removed, and it was noted that Jefferson, quote, emitted groans in the course of this operation. He did, however, emerge unscathed from the experience. Jefferson's good fortune, however, was not to last. First, of course, there was his financial state, which, despite his grandson Jeff's diligence to operations at Monticello, was continually growing worse by the nature of Jefferson's indebtedness. In January 1826, an idea was hatched. The state of Virginia had granted rights to hold a lottery in the past. Possibly a lottery could be held on Jefferson's behalf. One stumbling point with this, though, was that, as noted by Malone, quote, in recent years, there was more opposition to lotteries than formerly on moral grounds. I won't dwell on the ins and outs of the deliberations on it, though those were rather contentious, but the key point for our purposes is that it was ultimately approved by the state legislature, with one key provision. Jefferson had offered to include part of his property as a prize in the lottery, but the Virginia General Assembly, in its approval of the lottery, had specified that Monticello had to be included in the land awarded in the prize. Naturally, one can imagine how Jefferson felt at this, and likewise, in his supporters, there was a groundswell in efforts to find an alternate plan. Whether that was just donating money to him directly, or by purchasing a batch of tickets that would be burned in a public setting on a marked occasion such as Independence Day. Meanwhile, the first days of 1826 saw the public sale of Thomas Mann Randolph's estate of Edgehill. Then, on February 11th, the untimely death of Jefferson's beloved granddaughter, Anne Carey Bankhead, at the age of 35. On March 16th, Jefferson drafted out his will, which would grant freedom to two of his enslaved sons by Sally Hemings, as well as three other men that Jefferson enslaved. As he had in life, he largely entrusted his grandson Jeff to attend his affairs upon his demise. In the first half of 1826, Jeff had undertaken a trip up the eastern seaboard ostensibly to promote the Jefferson Lottery, but likewise to draw up support for folks to donate directly to his grandfather. Again, from Malone, quote, no lottery tickets were destroyed on July 4th because none had yet been sold. Still, thanks to Jeff's efforts, $7,500 was sent from supporters in New York directly to Jefferson. He was conscious at that point to recognize the contribution when it came in, but Jefferson was not long for this world. On June 24th, Dr. Dunglison was summoned, 
and he pronounced the deteriorating Jefferson to be nearing his demise. During Jefferson's last weeks, Dunglison provided vigilant medical care. Starting on July 2nd, though, Jefferson started to drift into unconsciousness. He would come to a few times more before succumbing again. Finally, on July 4th, 1826, Jefferson passed away at Monticello, surrounded by both free and enslaved individuals. This would prove, whether by human intervention or divine providence, to be the same day that his friend and at one point rival, John Adams, would pass away. Jefferson was buried at Monticello on the day after his passing, and the faculty and students of the University of Virginia adopted resolutions to honor him. As one can imagine, there were many honors granted to him upon his passing, but we must acknowledge the immediate legacy that Jefferson left. His estate had to be sold off to satisfy his creditors, and the sale started with the people that Jefferson enslaved. While, as we discussed in episode 3.26, there were three Hemings women, including Sally, who were not included in the auction, and free family members of other enslaved individuals worked to purchase their relatives, aided by the active effort of Jeff Randolph to keep the prices of those up for auction low, that day in January 1827 would truly be a heinous one for the enslaved community at Monticello. This auction would permanently rip apart families, and, as discussed in episode 3.285, Jefferson's white heirs would contend with the problem of paying Jefferson's debts long after the auction was done. Jefferson's descendants as a whole, both black and white, would struggle with his legacy for generations after his passing. Thank you all so much for sticking with me on this two-and-a-half-year journey through Jefferson's life and legacy. We have covered so much ground together, but now it's time to start down a new path and explore the presidency of James Madison. We'll have one final farewell to Jefferson with a Q&A episode where I'll answer your questions about the third president and his life and times, and we'll start the Madison presidency with the first of two pre-presidency episodes. Be sure to be on the lookout for both of those episodes very soon. Special thanks again to Kenny Ryan for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out Abridged Presidential Histories anywhere fine podcasts can be found. As stated at the beginning, a link to his Buzzsprout page will be on the Source Notes page for this episode. Thanks so much to Alex Van Rose for editing the audio for this episode to round out the series. If you'd like to get Alex's audio editing assistance, you can find the link to his Fiverr page on the Source Notes page for this episode. Likewise, special thanks to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. You can find links to more information on the Itinerant Band along with the other links mentioned on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There, you can also find the sources used for this episode and past episodes of the podcast. I also have information on the website about how you, yes, you, can help to support this podcast. Whether it's fulfilling books on my wish list for future podcast research, or contributing on a monthly basis through Patreon, Thanks so much to everyone who has provided financial support for this labor of love. Likewise, for those who supported the podcast by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else with that functionality, I cannot thank you enough. For those who have shared information about the podcast, either through social media or in person with that history fanatic in your life, believe me, there's always at least one. 
Thanks so much to you as well, to all of you. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.